All right, we are back in 1 John chapter 2. After a short 1 Peter break last week. Thank you, Mark. It was a good place for a break because uh, the text we're looking at today serves as a kind of a key transition to a new section in the book. And one thing we've been noticing about John is his writing style, which includes a lot of repetition of key words, usually short, simple, easy words, in short, simple sentences. That's how he kind of writes. So very different from the Apostle Paul, who loves big words and very long, convoluted sentences. But here at the end of chapter 2, John um, continues with a word that he's used a lot lately, and that's the word abide. Abide. And he begins to weave in some new words now, and he's going to weave in some new ideas along with those words. So, 1 John 2.28, this is the first time he's going to refer to the return of Christ. So that's, the, that's one of the new themes he's introducing there, Christ's return, the second coming. And in verse 29 is the first time that he directly talks about the new birth. Um, we see it here in the phrase, born of him. So, of course, in, it's John's Gospel where the new birth is talked about in the most detail, and that's where most people think of when we talk about being born again. That's where Jesus says one must be born again to see the kingdom of heaven. In John chapter uh, 3, it's also, he mentions the new birth in uh, John chapter 1, but uh, in this letter, John starts using the word born in reference to the new birth in verse 29. So, the new birth which every true Christian possesses, if you're a real believer, you've been born from above, born again, is the Bible language. Um, that's going to become a major theme here. But we're going to start with the word abide and really look at that this morning. It's a major concept in 1 John, abide and abides. I think he uses it about 20 times, that word in, the, in this letter of just five short chapters. So um, it's significant. So in 1 John 2.6, John describes the believer as one who will abide in him, abide in Christ. He also talks about abiding in the light in verse 10 of chapter 2. In verse 14 he says, have, have the word abide in you, the word. Similarly in 2.24 John's readers are told to let quote, that which you heard from the beginning abide in you. That would be the preaching of the gospel and the teaching of the apostles. All of that truth was to abide in them. So see, he's using that word in all kinds of ways, including all kinds of ideas there. So in 1 John 2, 27 then, it's the anointing from the Lord that abides in you. And we talked about that at the time. The anointing is the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So verse 27, let me read that. As for you, the anointing which you receive from him abides in you. And you have no need for anyone to teach you, but his anointing teaches you about all things and is true and is not a lie. And just as it is taught you, you abide in him. So the anointing abides in you so that you will abide in him. Does that make sense? Good. So this anointing, this internal teaching of the spirit it confirms for us the truth about Christ. So when we hear the truth, we say yes. And that's the Holy Spirit working in us. So John has a lot more to say about abiding, but this uh, twofold use in verse 27 is really important there. The anointing abides in us, and we abide in him. That whole idea. So he states that as just a flat-out fact. A believer abides 
in Christ. That's what we do. That's who we are. And that's what we are to make sure we're doing. Okay? So today we're looking at verse 28. And notice how this begins, this new section here. He says, Now, little children, abide in him. Now he's already said we abide in him. So why is he saying that? Well, you might not be. And you might be drifting. So if you're a true Christian, you already abide in Christ. But you need to consciously abide in Christ every day. That's what he's talking about there. And if you're not a Christian, you need to come to him and believe in Jesus and have the Spirit abide in you so you can abide in him. All of that kind of comes together. So we just want to talk about that. Now little children abide in him. Why does he call them children? Is he talking to just the kids? Is this a Sunday school class for kids? No, John is really old. And if you're like me, the older you get, the younger everybody else looks. So... Uh, uh, so he's their father in the faith. He uh, shepherded these churches for many decades and uh, he looks at them as his children. So, um, so this isn't aimed at kids. All believers in all the churches that he oversees are his little children. That's the way he talks to them. What is he telling his children to do? Abide in Jesus. Abide in Jesus. So to abide in him means to continue in this ongoing relationship with Jesus. Just as in verse 24, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. That was the gospel and all the truth about who Christ is. That was to abide in them. The apostles' teaching had to settle in their heart that remains in you and becomes an ongoing presence in your understanding, in your thinking, in your decision making, and the things that you believe, and the standards you set for yourself, and the choices that you make to follow those standards. The Word of God should always be abiding in you, always. Right? So too, you must abide in Jesus. Not wandering, not drifting, not having a sometime God that you turn to when you're in trouble, but otherwise you pretty much don't think about him, nothing like that. Your faith ties you to him as your savior and your king, your sovereign Lord. So never move away from that. That's what he's saying. Abide, remain, stay, dwell with. There's nothing better than Jesus. So what would you give him up for anyway? What are you going to go abide with better than him, right? What is better? You know in John chapter 6 when a bunch of Jesus' disciples left him because he was talking about eating his flesh and drinking his blood and being wholly committed unto him like that and, and a bunch of guys. And Jesus turned to the 12. You remember that? And he said, you don't want to go away also, do you? You remember what Peter said? Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God, he said. Well, there's nothing better than that. Where would you go? That's a good question. Where would we go? To whom would we go? What higher or better something or someone is there in the world? Little child, John says, abide in him. Abide in him. Keep that relationship with Jesus alive. Don't drift. Don't forget. So if the Spirit has taught you that Jesus is the Holy One of God, it's on you to abide, to remain with Him. How could you leave the Creator of all things who loved you so much He died in your place to reconcile you to Himself? How could you leave a God like that? What's better than that? Is anything better? Well, a young lady might say, I think I've heard this a couple times, 
Well, you've never met Johnny. He's so dreamy. <laughs> Just makes my heart flutter. Well, to that I say, oh my. <laughs> That's true. People can make your heart flutter. But that kind of thing is only a, a if you're trading Jesus for that, you have a disordered heart. You're out of order. Because there's you, you as a wise human being should prioritize what the best things are to love and other things come under that thing. That's how we're supposed to function. That's how, if we were not fallen, that's how we would function every day. So we have to talk about our deepest need. And Johnny or Susie, uh, if you're a guy, and your, Susie makes your heart flutter, or fame or riches or anything like that, getting high, nothing's going to give you anything that's going to last like Jesus will because that's an eternal joy in him. Fleeting pleasures are fleeting. Anything else that gives you supreme value other than Christ is an idol. So fluttering is fleeting. It even kind of sings. So remember that a fluttering heart is a fleeting heart. So is all life on earth. Everything on earth is fleeting. Everything. You are fleeting. You're not going to last unless you're in him. All the people you know aren't going to last. All the things you love aren't going to last. Unless they're in Christ. You are actually designed to be satisfied in God. That's how you're made. That he would be your greatest satisfaction. And if that's true, then everything else, as wonderful as other things can be, they come under that. They're, they're lower than that. And if you have to choose, you choose God. You choose God. Anything else you give supreme value to is an idol and a poor substitute for the infinite, eternal love of Jesus Christ. So Jesus reconciles you to the creator. He's the source of joy forever. He's the source of peace now. And Jesus redeems us from sin, which separates us from God. And he does that so we can be reconciled to God. And there's no greater reality than that, to truly be reconciled to God. So Jesus is not only the best thing, everything else through him gets put in its proper place and ordered properly for our lives. And he will teach you if Johnny is all that or not, or Susie. He will show you that love and peace are much better than a chemical stimulation or a alcoholic high or whatever it is. He taught us, Jesus taught us that fame is nothing. And as for untold riches, he said it's better to give than to receive. So he puts everything in its right order. Abide in him. Abide in him. Remain. Put him at the center of your affections, of your devotion, of all things. Keep him there too. That's what abide means. Keep him there. Remain. Build your world around his grace in your heart. Serve him. Love him. Be his child. First and foremost, abide so now after John says abide in him, there, there follows a little Greek word. It's just three letters. Hina. And it's usually translated so that. Or in order that. So abide in him so that. And it's always a, that's always a purpose clause. There's a reason here. Remain in Jesus so that when he appears. When he appears, remain in him because he's coming. 
So that's our brand new theme here in the letter, the return of Christ. When he appears, so here's a question, well, what's going to happen when he appears? What's coming? I think many of us feel that his coming's not too far away, right? The world is rushing headlong and kind of in defiance of him, kind of in shocking ways. I mean, it feels like that, right? That it's just around the corner. Now, I'm not a prophet, nor the son of a prophet, as they say. And Christians have felt this way many times down through history. In fact, I just read a book on the big fat 400 page book on the Salem witch trials, which was really interesting. But they believed that too, then, right then, that particular group of Puritans. They believed that right around the corner, Jesus is coming right around the corner. So it's very common in church history for Christians to believe that. But I've got to say, for all those other times in church history, Israel was not a nation, and it is now. And the remarkable interconnectedness of the whole world was not a reality anything like it is today. So who knows, right? Could be around the corner. I hope so. Jesus will come though. And what will happen when he appears? Well, let's turn to Matthew 13 for a minute and hear it from his own lips. So Jesus tells us about his coming in very clear language. So Matthew 13, if you know Matthew's structure, the whole chapter is a collection of parables. Matthew likes to collect things together in chapters. It's not so much chronological as kind of grouping things. And in the latter part of the chapter, Jesus talks about the infinite worth of being in the kingdom of God. What, what John would call abiding in him, right? So Matthew 13, look down at, all the way down at verse 44. So here's Jesus teaching parables. Verse 44, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and hid again. And from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. This is like ordering things, right? Making things, prioritizing, just what we talked about a minute ago. And then in verse 45, he says, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. There's nothing more valuable He's not talking about pearls, right? He's not talking about that. He's, he's not talking about treasures in a field. He's talking about the kingdom of God. He said the kingdom of God is like this. There's nothing more valuable than the kingdom of God. Nothing. Nothing. Then Jesus explains with a parable what will happen when he comes. Verse 47. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet cast into the sea and gathering fish of every kind. And when it was filled, they drew it up on the beach and they sat down and gathered the good fish into containers, but the bad they threw away. So he's locked that image into your mind. Verse 49, so it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth and take out the wicked from among the righteous and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, in the same portion in Matthew 13, Jesus says something very similar in verse 41 through 43. So kind of back up a little bit to verse 41. The Son of Man will send forth his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and all who commit lawlessness and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then, and this is the extra part, then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. Whenever he says that, he means you'd better take this seriously. 
I mention that because he makes really clear what will become of the righteous here. Actually quoting Daniel chapter 13, the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. Can't wait. There's only two destinations for human beings, for every single person. There's only one of two places, one of two destinations. You're in the kingdom or you're out of the kingdom. You're a good fish or you're a bad fish, right? You're a lawless stumbling block or you're one of the righteous. There's only two categories. And as we shall see, righteous means in one aspect that you're born of God, that you're born again. Okay, let's jump back to 1 John now. 1 John 2.29 reads, If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him. There's the new birth idea. But we really only just started in verse 28, so we're going to go back to that, but I wanted to read verse 29 before we do that. So let's see if we can get to verse 29 today. I'm not sure we'll make it, but regarding verse 28, we have some some broad context in Jesus' teaching about his coming to, I think, to grasp what John is saying here. So let me read verse 28, 1 John 2, 28. Now little children abide in him so that when he appears, now we can go forward, we may have confidence. When he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. That just grabs me, that whole sentence there. Wow. Again, you've got two responses. There's two ways, there's two destinations, there's two responses here described to his coming. So remember, we're looking at the so that statement, the purpose clause, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. So confidence comes from abiding abiding. Now there's a big interpretive question here. I'm going to spend the rest of my time trying to answer it. You see these two responses to the coming of Jesus. We want to abide in him, right? So we will have confidence at his coming. That is, we won't fear it. We're going to be excited to see our king and our savior. We aren't afraid of seeing him face to face because in some measure we've been faithful. We really believe. We're looking forward to that. We're not perfect. But we've kept short accounts with God. You know what I mean by that? Short accounts? We all sin, right? But we confess our sins. We deal with our sins. We wrestle with our sins. We put them down. We confess them to God. We accept the cleansing that he offers us. All the way back in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and the truth is not in us. But the most important part is that he does cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So keeping short accounts with God is confessing our sins as we go through life. Recognizing when somebody points them out or the Holy Spirit tells us or we just blow it and we know it. Blow it and know it. That's an important idea there. We blow it and we know it and we confess our sins and we ask for God to cleanse us of our sins. And he does it. So that's what we're talking about. We're not talking about perfect people. We're talking about people that deal with their unrighteousness. We deal with our sins. So if we fall, we confess them and receive that daily cleansing that God brings to us that keeps our relationship with the Lord open and true and confident. I'll use that word, uncluttered. So the first response to Christ's coming is confidence. 
some, some actually translate that word boldness. It's interesting in the Greek culture, they had this, they used that word for this ability to walk up to anybody and tell them what you really think. And that was a big part of their culture. You know that statue you made? It stinks. <laughs> that kind of thing. It was like a bold thing. I mean, that's a negative example. But it was just, but it, so it's talking about this confidence when we see Christ. This delight, this openness to him. We're not going to shrink away. We're going to be full of joy. Unhindered speech, free and open. That's the idea. Confidence is a really good translation here. But, but the other response, the contrary idea, is those who shrink away from him in shame at his coming. Literally pulling away from him. Can you imagine being so unprepared, so lacking in following Christ in your life that you're filled with shame at the very idea of him coming instead of delighting in it? You see him and you don't have joy. You shrink away. That's what he's describing here. No joyous anticipation because you know you have not honored him with your life. You've preferred other things to him, the world. You've treated the kingdom of God as something completely unimportant in your life. Far down the list of your priorities. And you might say, oh, I believe in Jesus, but you'd never give him a thought. Remember, Jesus told us to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and God would add all the other things onto us. Matthew 6, 33, remember that? Well, what if many things have come before his kingdom for you and righteousness doesn't even enter your mind. You don't think in terms of righteousness. Maybe you've even just openly embraced sin and you love it and you're going to keep it. Then you suddenly stand before him. Are you going to rejoice or are you going to shrink back? That's the question it's asking. Certainly the faithful Christian's going to rejoice because seeing Jesus is our greatest desire. I love my wife, but I want to see Jesus. <laughs> I love my family, but I want to see Jesus. I love all kinds of things in, in the world, but I want to see Jesus more than any of those things. Our gratitude makes that a reality. Our gratitude for his saving mercy, which we never deserved, and gratitude has led us to serve him and to love him and his kingdom and, and even righteousness. We love righteousness because he does. So when I come to this text, this big question jumps out before me. Is the one who shrinks away in shame a believer or an unbeliever? So that's my Bible study question that I wanted to wrestle with. And I did. Wrestled with it all week. <laughs> so let's talk about that. Is the one who shrinks away in shame a believer or an unbeliever? Now, is shame... This is the question, is shame here in this context a mark of no saving faith? Or is it a mark of a real faith that has rarely been exercised for Christ? It's just a kind of a weak faith, but a, but a genuine one. Is this a once born man or a twice born man? Is this a saved person, saved from sin, or is this a person lost in sin? Could a person be saved by Christ and still shrink away from him when he comes because their, their life with him is so tepid and weak. So which, what is he talking about here? I don't think it's a really easy answer. There's a lot of other scriptures that kind of come into play 
been thinking about this. There does seem to be a biblical basis for thinking this might be a saved person who's not walking in a worthy manner. There are people like that. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Look, let's turn there real quick. That's kind of a key spot there. Paul is talking about ministry in 1 Corinthians and Paul as an apostle and a church planter is laying the foundation and he knows other people are going to build on the foundation. He, laid, he gets a church started, he moves to the next town, somebody else is going to come in and work that church. This is what he says in verse 10 of 1 Corinthians chapter 3. According to the grace of God which was given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, he's always talking about, he's using an image, okay, you're building a structure on the foundation. Verse 13, each man's work will become evident. For the day will show it. What's the day? The day Christ comes back. That's what he's talking about. The day we stand before him. The day will show it because it will be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. But... He himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. So I think that's an important verse to weigh and consider when we're talking about what John is talking about. So everyone's work is represented by a building, a building on an apostolic foundation, which is the Bible for us. And the building is a picture of man's work. So either, one, the building will be done properly with suitable material, or it'll be built like a Japanese paper house, you know, and, and when you light a match in it, it goes poof. It's gone. So the judgment will be like setting a match to the structures that we build. It'll be like that. This isn't purgatory or anything. It's an image, okay? It's a picture. There's structures that we've built with our lives in our ministries and what will remain when Jesus' burning gaze scrutinizes what we've done. Some men's work will show durability, a lasting work, a work done well, and they'll get a reward for that in heaven. Others work, their work was done on the cheap, let's put it like that. They should have put 12 nails and screws in that, that joist and, and they only put three in there because they're cheapskates, you know what I mean? They're bad builders. More full of self in their work, church work, than, than Jesus. It's more about them. But they will be saved because there's something genuine in it. There's a real faith in Christ there. And so his blood does cover them. So Paul says they will be saved. They'll just suffer loss there. The rewards won't be quite so grand. You'll be on the interior of the heavenly cruise ship, not on the windows side or whatever you want to, however you want to see it that way. For all of us, there's good advice in Paul's next chapter, chapter 4 of 1 Corinthians, verse 5. He says, therefore, do not go passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes. Because we don't know. Right? Can you, can you read everybody's heart? I sure can't. 
I can make guesses, but that's all I can do. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will bring both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. What is that minister's motive? Is it money? Is it fame? Is it attention? Is it to serve Christ? To give and give away? To lift people up? What's his motive? Motive matters. What's in our heart? That's what Jesus cares about the most, actually. There's also the case of the man in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, the next chapter. But there was a church member living a blatantly immoral life, and they hadn't done anything about it in that church, and Paul's pretty upset with them. So he chastises the church for not removing him from the church and practicing church discipline. They, they, they were supposed to do that, and they didn't do it. You know, just like Jesus said, if your brother sins, go to him. If he doesn't listen, take somebody with you. If he doesn't listen to them, tell it to the church. If he doesn't listen to the church, you put him out. They weren't doing that. So in verse 3 of chapter 5, he says, On my part, though absent in body, but present in spirit, having already judged him who has committed this, as though I were present, in the name of the Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I've decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. So that purpose clause, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Now that could mean he is saved and, and, or it could mean this might wake him up to be saved. So it's not super clear one way or the other on that. But the day of the Lord Jesus is again when Jesus appears. That's what he's talking about. So verse 5 ends with so that what is the so that? The purpose clause, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. So Paul seems to suggest here a, a shortened life as a consequence for his sins, but still saved or at least potential salvation for that guy. So whatever the case, Paul reminds us, all of us, I'll just read this, for Romans 14.10, same principle, we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. That's what he says, Romans 14.10. So that's, that we know. So is the man who fails to abide in John the one who shrinks away at Christ's coming, is he saved or is he an unbeliever? That's, that's my question. Well, Warren Wiersbe, who I respect a lot as a preacher, he, he says he is saved. And let me read you what he says. He says, some Christians will be ashamed before him at his presence. All believers are accepted, but there is a difference between being accepted and being acceptable. A disobedient child who goes out and gets dirty will be accepted when he comes home, but he will not be treated as though he is acceptable. A Christian who has not walked in fellowship with Christ in obedience, love, and truth will lose his rewards and this will make him ashamed. So that's his view of that. He could be right. He could be right. It's certainly true that one could pass through the judgment of having one's works burned up like we saw in 1 Corinthians 3 and still have eternal life. I mean, that seems to be what Paul is saying. And saved as through fire, right, is Paul's language. However, on the other side, I think we have to look at John's language really carefully, especially this abiding language. We talk a lot about abide here in 1 John. Abide in him. One of the dominant meanings of abide is to remain, um, to stay with, even to live with, to dwell with. So the immediate context of 1 John does use abide directly in connection with salvation. And that's why I'm wondering about what the, uh, how this plays out here. 
In fact, all of John's language here is connected to salvation issues, not just rewards or anything like that. Remember, his theme is answering the question. The whole theme of 1 John is who is a real Christian. That's what he's been writing about, and he'll keep writing about it. That's what the book's about. Look, look at verse 24, 1 John 2:24, right in the middle of the verse. Um, he says, if what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. This is the promise which he himself made to us, eternal life. So if, you, if the gospel abides in you, you're going to abide in the Son and the Father. And the promise of that is eternal life. So abiding is the big question here regarding salvation. He's clearly referring to the central truths of the faiths, what you heard from the beginning. That would be the gospel, the all-sufficient atonement of Christ for all who believe. That's what they heard from the beginning. And then there's the presence of God in us, the anointing. So verse 26, these things I have written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. As for you, the anointing which you received from him, that's the Holy Spirit, abides in you. And you have no need for anyone to teach you, but his anointing teaches you about all things and is true and is not a lie. And just as it is taught you, you abide in him. If you have the Holy Spirit teaching you these things, you abide. So when he says in verse 28 then, now children, little children, abide in him, that's a warning. That's a warning. Make sure that you are in the faith that those things you heard from the beginning do abide in you, that the Holy Spirit is present in you, and that you are abiding in Him, that you're in the gospel, that you have repented of your sins and trusted in Jesus alone for your salvation and embraced Him as your sovereign Lord and King. That's how everyone is saved. You can't be saved without that happening. And as John goes on, the word abide is keeps being connected to salvation. Look at verse 29. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him. Now that'll be our focus next week, but if you're born of him, you know that righteousness is to be a characteristic of your life. You know that. God teaches you that. Skip down to chapter 3 verse 4 as he keeps making his case here. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. We'll talk about that more next time, <laughs> in the next couple weeks. But he's saying you can't abide in the sinless one who came to destroy sin and then be all about sin yourself. You just can't do that. Salvation means knowing him, and he is holy, 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 and righteous. He is that. Verse 7, little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him and he cannot sin because he is born of God. There's all the new birth language, right? Verse 10, by this the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God nor the one who does not love his brother. See the word abide there in verse 9? 
If we are born of him, his seed abides in us. Very stark division here between people. Very strong language here. A very clear division. Lots of questions here, which we'll look at in the future. But here's my conclusion about verse 28 and the meaning of shrinking away from Christ. Is that a believer or an unbeliever? Well, I think Paul does allow for standing before Christ and having all your works burned up and still being saved. So I would say there's probably some regret there. He doesn't say shrinking away in shame, but there would be regret there. I, I think Jesus, even when he does that, is going to be very compassionate. And you're not going to shrink away in shame from him. But I think he's going to say, you understand, don't you, why these rewards are denied to you. These that, that window seat is denied for you. I think he's going to be very compassionate. So I think this shrinking away in shame here is because the person does not abide. The person does not have the spirit, the anointing. The person is not born of him. He is given over to sin and he does not know him. The language is kind of inescapable the way John builds this out. Listen, God is very rich in mercy. He understands our weaknesses. That's why he's so forgiving. He's not wanting to clobber his children. That's not what he's about at all. We turn to him and he is all hugs and kisses. I'm not making that up. Read the prodigal son story. That's exactly what happens. When he runs home, dad grabs him and kisses him over and over again. That's who God is. He's the dad in the prodigal son story. But a true child is different from a, a hanger on around churches or an unbeliever. An unbeliever does not abide because he doesn't have a real interest in the Lord. It just doesn't hit him or her. At best he's religious, which is nothing before God. But he has nothing in his heart for the living God, so he will shrink away when he meets Jesus because he'll suddenly be aware that he has no standing with him. Shame will be his only thing. You know how people think, you know, when I see God, I'm going to ask some questions. I got some things I want to say. No, they'll be shrinking away in shame. They're going to instantly know how completely vile and wicked they are before a holy God. They'll all be shrinking away. So John's advice here, when he says abide in him, little children, is make sure you're not that person who's going to shrink away. Merely religious. A sort of Christian. So he says, abide in the Father and the Son. And that means repent and believe to save your soul. John wants to see genuine faith so nobody's surprised when they stand before Christ. That's what he wants to see. That confidence. So no one shrinks away. That's his goal. Nobody shrinks away in shame. I want to see that too. That's our goal. We don't want anybody to shrink away in shame. Let's pray. Our great Lord, there's, there's no question you are in every way supremely worthy of our abiding with you. Nothing compares with you. But we are weak creatures who can only live by your spirit in us. And as he opens our hearts and helps us abide, we pray that we will continue with you. May we see your worth and rejoice that you have sought us out to be your precious children. And we can rejoice in that and look forward to the day we see you face to face. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right. We'll be coming back to that question, what is a true Christian, many times in the coming chapters here. So hang with us. Hope that was helpful.